0: My name is Ruth, I'm part of the team here at KXC and it is great to be together today um, and to um, share a few, a few thoughts with you. This is a picture, she says, of my niece, Mary. I know, right? And my sister, but, you know, we're only really interested in my niece. Um, She's going to be three in a few months, and she's had a few kind of struggles in her little short life so far, which means that she hasn't yet mastered the art um, of speaking, um, but she has incredibly successfully mastered the art of communication. So she is small. She can't speak. She can't, she's got no money in a bank account. She can't do anything for herself. But man, does she have the power. One raised eyebrow and her parents know exactly what she wants. A particularly nuanced hour means that she wants to go see the fish in the aquarium. A little squawk, she's angry. A whimper, she's hungry. A particular hand gesture means she wants some food. And these things are given, and they are given quickly. And in part, because of the particular struggles that she's had, um, there's an additional level of care and concern maybe about her. That means that the natural power that a small child has is somewhat amplified. And also, look at her eyes. I mean seriously if but if you watch any movie or read any novel watch tv play a video game you'll see that there's often one quite specific definition of power power is how big is your army how much is in your bank account how clever manipulative fast talking persuasive can you be just how large is your gun Power is domination, it is violence, it is winning at the expense of all others, but anyone who has ever spent any time around a newborn baby that is hungry will know that power can be utterly disconnected from any apparent strength. And today we're finishing up our series, God With Us, and over the last few weeks we've been looking at how how God relates to, through Jesus, with particular groups within society. So we started off looking at Jesus with the poor. We saw how Jesus has this radical, radically confronts these kind of cultural expectations on those that are deemed as on the outside of society, the poor, the sick, the sinners. We looked at how Jesus redefines the relationship with women, with Gentiles. And then last week, Pete talked about how Jesus relates to his disciples. And today we're finishing up this series by looking at how Jesus relates to power And one of the things that we've seen as we've gone through this whole sermon series is that each week Jesus radically redefines the status, standing and understanding of these different groups that we've been looking at. And today's no different. Jesus has a radical understanding of power. And this means that he deals differently to those with power as well as to those without power than we might assume. Jesus confronts those with power who use it to oppress and abuse others, and Jesus elevates those who appear to have no power. Those who, as a result of circumstance or society or religion, are deemed as powerless are given pride of place in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus also has a radical understanding of his own power. The incarnation, the first Christmas that we are rapidly approaching and the celebration of, is the most radical act of giving up power. The creator of the whole cosmos, God Almighty, the, the word that was in the beginning, took on the powerless, weak and frail form of a human baby. The one who, as the classic 80s song goes, whose hands flung stars into space, whose breath is the source of all life, whose words are the source of all of creation, holds the very universe in his hands, this God, those hands, became the helpless fists of a newborn baby. The voice that creates became the powerless cries of a voiceless infant. And yet it isn't as straightforward as saying that the gospel teaches us that power is bad and powerlessness is good. Because at the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus enacted the greatest and most powerful event in all of history. An empty tomb, the conquering of death and sin, a resurrected Christ, the most explosive, powerful and world-changing event that some theologians describe as like the central point of history around which all of time and creation spins like a helix. Jesus explodes in power. In Philippians, Paul um, writes, and we'll know this, uh, these verses quite well Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul writes that Jesus, who, even though he was of the same nature as God, gave up his place of power, becoming in the same form as humanity. The exact same words in Greek, morphe. He had the morphe, the form of the nature of God, and he gave that up to take on the morphe, the form of humanity. Therefore, God exalted him and you don't get much more powerful than that statement so that every knee would bow every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and in that short little poem we see Jesus's unique relationship to power he gives up his power he radically changes the meaning of power and still he is the epitome of all power so first of all, let's just take a look at how Jesus gives up his power. And one of the first recorded moments in Jesus's a kind of public adult ministry, uh, which we read about in Luke 4, was right after Jesus had been baptized. The Spirit leads him off into the wilderness, into the devil, and into the desert. And the devil tempts him. And the devil is tempting Jesus to exercise his power. Jesus is tempted with food when he's hungry the devil says if you're the son of God tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered it is written man shall not live on bread alone and so the devil takes him to this high place offers him the whole of the kingdom all power and authority can be his if only he bows down before the devil and Jesus answers worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so the devil leads him to Jerusalem and puts him to, makes him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Command the angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands. And Jesus said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil knew that Jesus could have done any of those things. He could have grasped power. He could have held on to his position in the Godhead. He could, instead, he humbled himself taking on the form of humanity. Back in um, 2007, Joshua Bell, who was at that point one of the world's top violinists, he was paid um, thousands of pounds to play on the best stages in the world, and he played one of the world's most valuable um, Stradivarius violins. He threw on a baseball cap, and he went down to a metro station in Washington, D.C., and he began to busk. And it was done as a bit of an experiment, and the results of it are fascinating, because hardly anyone stopped. Of the more than 1,000 people that walked past Joshua playing, only 27 gave him money, and only seven stopped to listen for any length of time. This violinist, for whom many people paid top dollar to listen, made only 50 bucks, His playing was no different. His talent was no different. The music was the same. The $4 million violin was the same. The only thing that had changed was the context. People didn't recognize him. They didn't see his talent. They didn't expect to see such talent busking in a subway station. And they didn't pay attention. And so they missed it. At the incarnation, Jesus, the very son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the word that was in the beginning, took on flesh. And a little bit of um, early church theology for you. And the fact that Jesus was both fully divine and fully human was one of the most important decisions made by the early church there were vigorous and highly contentious debates. Heresies were codified and doctrinal truths were enshrined in the creeds that we still say today. It's known as the Chalcidean definition. And it was done to protect the point that Jesus, the word made flesh, is both fully human and fully divine. So when Paul writes that Jesus took on the nature of a human, humbling himself, making himself nothing, emptying himself, he literally and willingly gave up his power, but he was still the son of God. And it speaks to this call to humility. And I think we often can struggle a little bit to understand um, what we mean when we talk about humility. I think one of the best descriptions I've um, ever heard comes from the word, uh, an understanding of the origin of the word meek. You know, in um, Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And the Greek origin for that word um, is is the word "price," which is actually best translated as strength under control. And it has this image of like a powerful stallion horse under the control of a bridle. And it was the word actually used in ancient Greece to speak about war horses. They were strong and powerful, yet under control and willing to submit. So when Jesus humbled himself... When he emptied himself, he took on the meek form of humanity, totally submitted to the will of the Father. But every time Jesus healed someone, preached the gospel, set someone free, declared truth, forgave sins, rose from the dead, this was the power of God, the dunamis power of the Holy Spirit working in and through him. Jesus' identity as the Son of God didn't just evaporate. He was the Messiah. But just like Joshua Bell, it wasn't seen because people weren't expecting it. The Messiah wasn't expected to be a poor carpenter's son from Nazareth, but a knight in shining armour ready to defeat the Roman Empire. The Messiah wasn't expected to give up power, but to claim power, And by coming to earth in this particular way, Jesus demonstrated the real truth about what power is, that the greatest power is in choosing to give up status, to empty ourselves. And the model of Jesus that we are called to follow is that of meekness, power under control, power not exercised for selfish ambition, not used to control others, but submitted to the authority of Jesus. And in fact, Jesus went even further than just modeling the giving up of power because he also overtly confronted and challenged those in society who held power. You know, for every one of the groups that we've been talking about um, over the last few weeks, that everyone that was elevated and drawn into a higher position, others had their comfortable position confronted or challenged so when Jesus welcomed the prostitutes and sinners in to eat at his meal table, the religious leaders complained as their privileged position was being challenged. When Jesus elevated women and offered them a kind of radically different status, the patriarchy was challenged. When the Gentiles were welcomed in, the prejudice and arrogance of the religious elite was illuminated. The welcome home, the prodigal son got upset, the righteous elder brother. And perhaps most outrageous of all, Jesus, his continued and repeated healings, forgiving of sins, um, hanging out with the worst of society, threatened the entire social order and structures that the religious culture was built on. You can't welcome in those on the edge without those at the centre losing their privilege in some way. Not only was Jesus willing to do this, but he challenged those who fought against him, who sought to protect their own power and status more than to welcome the outsider. In fact, his harshest criticism, his most damning of statements, was towards those in positions of power. So here are some of them from Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seats, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. I mean, it's quite intense. And it goes on for a lot of verses. There are seven woes to the Pharisees. And just in that one chapter... You see, the, the thing is that Jesus didn't have a, a problem with power. It wasn't the power itself that Jesus is talking about. It was about the way the power was abused. It was about how people kept others from entering into the kingdom of God, from knowing the truth about God, and they used their power to do that. Just shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, They're not trying to welcome people into the kingdom. They are trying to keep people out. One of my favorite um, stories from the Gospels is um, the one when Jesus turns over the temples. And if you heard um, Tyler Statton, he opened this sermon series and he was talking about Jesus with the poor. And he used this um, story uh, as part of that talk. If you haven't heard it, it's worth it. It's on the website. Check it out. Um, But Tyler talked about some of the reasons behind this particular incident, how the religious leaders had so kind of construed the temple, created it in a certain type of way that meant that Gentiles and the poor, those who were coming to the temple to meet with God, were being actively discriminated against. And what I love about this story is kind of how ridiculous it is. You know, here is Jesus, who we, who we too often think of as this kind of blonde-haired, blue-eyed shepherd with a fluffy lamb flung across his shoulders, smiling somewhat wistfully off into the distance. And instead, what's happening in here is that he goes into the temple courts, he sees what's happening, he goes out, he makes a whip of cords. That would have taken several hours. He then storms into a packed-out courtyard, filled with people visiting the temple, Market stores, sellers selling their ware. you know, two shekels for a nice pair of doves, best sheep this side of Jordan here. And Jesus storms into this crowd and he starts using his whip. He releases the animals, he turns over the tables, he chases the sellers out of the courtyard, all the while shouting in a commanding voice, you have made this a den of robbers. My father's house should be a house of prayer. I mean, talk about Power. You can kind of just picture it, the sort of power using out of every pore. And people obey. Or the more kind of subtle power that Pete talked about with the woman who was caught in adultery. The men try and stone her. There's another crowd, almost a, a riot is happening. They're all there with their stones in hand, ready to kill her for her supposed sin. And Jesus, silent, bends down, Starts writing in the the sand. Such power to command this riot without even saying a word until he looks up and says, he who is without sin may cast the first stone. Less than a dozen words, a look, and the rioting crowd disperse. Jesus is not some timid, shy teacher hiding in quiet corners, speaking in hushed tones. He commands crowds. He calms the storm. He raises the dead. He creates such a stir that he has to be executed. He is reckless, outrageously powerful. It was just never the power that people expected. So even we looked at last week, the night, just hours before Jesus' crucifixion, when the disciple Peter, still holding into his mind an image of power that requires a demonstration of earthly might, takes up a sword and cuts off a guard's ear. Poor Peter. Still sort of expecting this warrior king, this messiah on a big white horse leading an army, a power that would fight and destroy and, and conquer and kick out the oppressors. When instead, Jesus' power is strength under control, authority submitted to the will of the Father, not my will, but yours be done, a power that goes silently and willingly to face his show trial. This power of Jesus so radically confronted those of his time who held onto their own power and their own positions and status. Jesus was never afraid of those in power because he knew he held the true source of all power and he knew the real story that was going on. How often do we get swept up into a kind of a false worldly understanding of power, of position, of privilege, afraid to confront those with power for how it might destabilize our position, reluctant to welcome in the outsider as insiders, we might then lose some of our privilege, Social revolutions have so often happened when those without power stand up to those in power. The civil rights movements in the 60s in America, the Me Too campaign of the last decade, the the social justice conversations that have been happening about um, racial injustice over the last years... The model of Jesus is about a true understanding of the story of redemption that is going on. It's sort of the arc of recreation that Pete, you know, loves to talk about. This unfolding and inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And it's a power that's so radically different to the world's. And at the incarnation. A new kingdom was inaugurated. In this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the first are last, the weak are strong. And at the resurrection, Jesus Christ triumphed over evil and death, demonstrating in probably the most dramatic way possible that he is the source of all power. Paul writes about Jesus in the first chapter of Colossians. He says, Jesus is the source of all creation, the image of the invisible God, the one who gave up his power, who confronts and conquers worldly power and is the source of all true power. And we are, um, as the Christmas notices have have made clear, we are well and truly into Advent by now. And the thing about Advent is that it is um, about two things. It is about preparing for, waiting with expectation, getting ready to celebrate the incarnation that first Christmas, the moment when the creator of the universe gave up his power, but it's also about something else it's also about the moment in the church's calendar when we remember and we wait expectantly for the second coming of Christ when Jesus will return in all splendor his kingdom will be fully established and we will see the final victory of Christ Advent means literally coming and it's the moment in the year when we pray Come, Lord Jesus. Last words of the Bible. He, that is Jesus, who testifies to these things, says, "Yes, I am coming soon." Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We're taught to pray, "Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven." Come, Lord Jesus. We celebrate that first comet coming, and we look for the second. And the narrative story of power in the ministry of Jesus is that as he gives up his power, he challenges and confronts those who abuse their power He's raised from the dead in a demonstration of power and he will come again in the fullness of that power. And the reason Jesus could give up his power, the reason he could do what he did is because he knew this story was happening. Herod missed it when he thought he could hold on to his power through a massacre, as if he could bring down the son of God before the right time. Pilate missed it when he stood in front of Jesus and through baffled eyes said, who are you? The Pharisees and the rulers of the law missed it when they were so preoccupied with holding onto their position and their status that they missed the God of love they were being invited into. And what they missed was this narrative story of redemption. That as we lay down our life, we find eternal life. As we give up our power, we find the true source of all power as we are woven into that in-breaking kingdom. I've spent um, quite a few years working in different countries, doing kind sort of different um, development work, some um, aid ministry and uh, development work with vulnerable people. And uh, this is a picture that's taken in 2015. It's probably one of my favorite pictures, and it kind of lives in my head. Um, at the time I was living in the United States and I'd been invited down to Guatemala with the International Justice Mission and IJM is a Christian legal organization that fights global injustice, um, human slavery, sex trafficking, um, human trafficking, abuse against minors and in this picture I'm in um, Guatemala City Zoo hosting a day of joy. The aim of the day was to take children who had been um, through the prosecution for having been sexually abused or trafficked in some way and give them a kind of of day of joy, a day of lightness, and this little girl in the picture with me was a tiny little four or five-year-old who had just finished giving testimony in a horrific case of um, abuse and trafficking, and despite neither of us being able to speak a word of each other's language, we quickly became firm friends because I do excellent animal imitations, just putting it out there, Um, monkeys being something I'm particularly brilliant at, and uh, (laughs) I'm not doing it now, Um, (laughs) Next week. Hey, next, yeah, anyway. Um, so as I swung her around the zoo, I have this moment, this image firmly fixed in my head. Her kind of beautiful beaming smile looking up at me as she giggled and laughed. And the reason why it's fixed in my head is because as I laughed with her, I was acutely aware of the darkness that she was walking through. And I found myself caught up and moved by this juxtaposition. Deep, heart-breaking darkness... And this shining innocent joy. And to me, that is the kingdom of God. That's the inbreaking kingdom that we are invited into. It's the true story of power, the promise of joy in the midst of despair, redemption from the very pit of hell, freedom from captivity, innocence restored, light shining in the darkness. And I really, really love Christmas, really love Christmas. I've already watched. I counted them and it was embarrassing. I've already watched eight Christmas movies. Thanks. They're not all good either. I mean, Hallmark Christmas specials are a firm favorite. I plan on working my way through most of Netflix catalog before at least the next two weeks. I love the music, I love the trees, I love the twinkly lights, but the reason why I love it is because I know that at some point, every Christmas, there will be a moment when I'm kind of caught up in that childlike wonder at the truth that the creator of the whole universe came to earth. Despite all of the cliches, all the other stuff that comes with Christmas, there is this moment of breakthrough. The light shone in our darkness. The word was made flesh. God incarnate in all of his might broke into the darkness of this world so that we might know his salvation. When we connect those cosmic truths, the story of Christmas takes on a new meaning. The the new kingdom that was inaugurated. That Jesus gave up his power so that light might shine in the darkness. So that hope might penetrate into the very core of our existence. And at the cross, when Jesus conquered death, making it possible for all people to receive his mercy, to be delivered from the grip of sin, And that one day, the day we are longing for, Jesus will return in all of his glory, in all of his power to fully establish his kingdom on earth, to deliver this world. And as we live in this now and not yet, a kind of, in a way, perpetual advent We are called to live with that same attitude of Christ, that meekness, that power under control, the submission, the giving up of our power to submit it to the authority of Jesus, to the will of the Father, so that we might be part of seeing God's kingdom break in, so that we might live that true story of power.